Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Hold Me Tight by Sue Johnson. Seven conversations for a lifetime of love. Uh, it's that time of year, mate. Valentine's Day, love time. So it's time to do a relationship book. And love is you know, something that we write books about, we pen poems about, we sing songs about, we pray for it, we fight wars about it, uh, we build monuments to it, we soar when somebody says, I love you, and we plummet when somebody says, I don't love you anymore. We think about it endlessly, but really, what is it? Yeah, things fall flat when you just get the old, I don't love you anymore. Uh, I could imagine to be a, a bit of a slap across the face for some people. So, but yeah, it's something bit, that yeah, we, that's probably an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be the best thing to cop on your Valentine's Day coming up. Um, but what is it really? Like scholars and practitioners, they've wrestled over definitions and understandings for centuries. But to some cold-blooded observers who are just super, super rational, they might say, hey, love is just mutually beneficial alliance based on trading favors, just a give-get bargain between two people. Yeah, so that's, that's one way to look at it. <laughs> um, if you're a bit more historically inclined, you might regard it as a sentimental social custom created by the ministrels of 13th century France. Couldn't tell you what a minstrel is, but it sounds like they had a lot of love flowing around. Mm. Well, another interpretation, if the old Richard Dawkins hat, if you threw that on, a biologist and anthropologist would view it as a strategy just basically ensure the transmission of genes and rearing offspring. I reckon that one's got a bit of merit. Yeah, definitely. But So basically to most people, uh, whatever it is, it still remains bit of a mystery and unfortunately a little bit of an elusive emotion as well. So it should come as no surprise that there was a survey, as there often tends to be, there was a survey of people in Western societies and they rated a satisfying love relationship as their number one goal, the number one thing that they wanted to pursue and attain, even above financial success and a satisfying career. Ooh, that's a big one. So if it's their number one goal... You might as well have a crack about how mm. figuring this one out and trying to optimize and make the most of it. So it is imperative that we comprehend what love is. I want to know what... That song just poked <laughs> in my head. It's a good song. It's a good song. It's very true. And how we can basically make it last throughout a relationship. And thankfully, during the last few decades, Sue and her research and through her therapy, counseling and everything like that, who's the author of the book, she's found an exciting understanding of love that has been emerging over the last few decades. And to the answer that song, uh, I want to know what love is. <laughs> Maybe we do know what love is right now. <laughs> well, we spoke about all those options before. This is Sue's version. She says that love is the pinnacle of evolution. She says it's the most compelling survival mechanism, not because it induces us to mate and reproduce because... Uh, if anybody knows, there's definitely times that you can mate and produce offspring without love, uh, but uh, because love drives us to bond emotionally uh, and with a precious few others who offer us a safe haven from all the storms of life. So we all want to find this emotional attachment. We want to find someone who we can just sort of just grab and hold and say, hey, hold me tight here, as the uh, title of the <laughs> yep. book says. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what they say in that romantic <laughs> moment. And uh, it's wired into our genes and our bodies. It's something that we all want, let's face it. It is as basic to life, health and happiness as the drive for food, shelter and sex. We need emotional attachments and a few irreplaceable others in our lives to make us physically and mentally healthy and to survive. Chris is a cruel, rigid and uncaring parent, said Jane. The kids need taken care of. They need your attention, not just your rules. Chris turns his head away. 
and calmly speaks about the need for discipline and he says Jane doesn't really know how to set boundaries. They're arguing back and forth. Finally, Jane puts her face in her hands and moans, I just don't know who you are anymore. You're like a stranger. Yeah, this is the old couples counseling that Sue always takes people on and she's always uh, asking the couple to have a think about what the problem is in your relationship and what the solution might be. And always the people, she asks that question, they dig in a little bit and offer up a few ideas. They shoot from the hip, having a guess about what their issues are. <laughs> Sally, she says that Jay is too controlling. Uh, he has to be taught how to share power more equitably. Tom, he suggests that he and Hannah have had such different personalities that agreement to pairing style is just too hard to come to. Nat, she's convinced that Carrie has some kind of sex hang-up and probably needs to go and see a sex therapist. These couples, they're, they're trying to work out what is this cause of the distress, but all of these assumptions are really missing the mark. Yeah, 100%. Their explanations, they're like the old tip of the iceberg. You can just see the things that are bubbling on the surface, but deep, deep down in the unconscious, their relationships are probably in some sort of patterns and um, twists and turns and things that uh, are happening deep beneath the surface that they can't really see themselves and this is most likely why you need to go and see a superstar therapist like Sue because they'll be able to look at what is the real problem that actually is lying beneath the, the surface. We say that we love our partners uh, but clearly those examples up above and many, many, many other very, very similar examples probably tell a different story because if we did love our partners, why couldn't we just you know hear what the other person's saying, hear their calls for attention and connection and then respond with something a little bit caring rather than just a tit-for-tat digging at each other. Mm. Well, uh, let's think about the two superstar names that pop up in every book, Carol and Jim. Yeah. Always just pretty stock standard names and uh, they are the, the superheroes of, of non-fiction books. <laughs> but when their attack withdraw sort of pattern they get into way of dealing things spills into other issues like we don't talk and we don't have sex or whatever it might be, what they do is they end up in this terrible loop where it's sort of like a negative feedback loop and the negative responses fuels more negative responses and so forth. So like the more Carol blames Jim, the more Jim withdraws, the more Jim withdraws, the more fr the more frantic and cutting become her attacks towards Jim, making him withdraw more. So Carol and Jim are going in this pattern and things are just turning to shit very quickly. Eventually, the what of any fight doesn't really matter because you just get so far beyond the reason that you started the fight that you're just fighting because you are fighting, really. Uh, and that constant sort of pattern of just fighting, 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 really it's leading that entire relationship to become marked by resentment, caution, distance. You're going to see every tiny little difference as a disagreement through this negative filter that really pervades the whole relationship. Yeah, I'm sure there's no shortage of relationships out there like that. You're just going to take a trip to the old supermarket sometimes and observe some couples. Someone is pulling out the Nutella or something and then the other partner is screaming at him and you're like, Jesus, it's just Nutella. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, uh, is that a personal one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's not. It's not. But angry and frustrated, partners always scrambling for an explanation. And some of the couple therapists out there, they focus on teaching negotiation, right? And like... It's what Jordan Peterson says in his uh, his book, 12 More Rules for Life, and uh, it's where you need to work on communication, negotiation to sort of contain the conflict. But again, this is really addressing the symptoms, the tip of the iceberg, and not getting down to the, the disease where the real issues are forming. That's right. Deep down, fundamentally, we have a need for connection, and then, of course, we fear losing it. 
And when we fear losing it, that's when we get a little bit defensive, a little bit protective. That's when the fights start to spiral out of control. And we very rarely just take that step back and recognize what the core problem is, which is that need for connection and really giving the other person what they need. All us human beings, we're sharing these deep sensitivities and we express them in very different ways. And when relationships feel like they're going in free fall, these sensitivities manifest in different ways. Like uh, men typically like talk of feeling rejected and you feel inadequate in your relationship and a fear of failure. Uh, And women, on the other hand, typically appear to have one additional response that emerges when they're distressed. And uh, researchers call it the sort of tend and befriend fallback. As lovers, as we're trying to make our way through a relationship, it's like we're poised together delicately on a tightrope. And the tightrope, it's pretty hard to walk down just during normal calm times. But when the wind starts blowing, when that line starts shaking, that's when the, when the doubt and the fear and the attack start rolling through, that line, that tightrope that you're on is getting really, really, <laughs> really, really wild. And you're going to really struggle to just stand still on it because if we, we're probably going to panic, we're going to clutch to each other, we might push each other away, we might use each other as a bit of leverage to try to stay solid on that tightrope, but really that's just pushing the other one further Jeez, away. Astro, you see you're on this tightrope, you're just grabbing Allah to bring her down with you or something. <laughs> Either way. Jesus. You know, if, if one's going down, I'd rather it not be me, but in the end, both of you are going down at some point. So really what you need to do is really come together to get back into balance. If you want to stay on that tightrope, you do need to shift what you're doing right now, stop spiraling in those same loops and start to do something a little bit different. Let's close that uh Tightrope analogy, Asha. How how you how you getting out of that one? We're we're moving, mate. We're moving. To, we're going to hold hold each other tight, but as, <laughs> as the title would suggest. Now to build and sustain this secure bond, sort of just like build a brick wall or a brick road below this. <laughs> maybe, maybe a net. A net nets below good, this yeah. tightrope, not a brick wall that you're going to fall on. Uh, we need to be able to tune into our loved ones as strongly as we did before. And we need to do this by creating moments of engagement and connection where you both really feel safe. And above all, it means you can uh, allow yourself to be extremely vulnerable like you need to need to be to be able to have deep conversations. And in doing that, you're going to take the first step towards a sense of closeness where you'll be able to create some sort of the Hollywood moments at will, right? The ones that you, you see on TV. Um, you can actually have those moments in this wildly beautiful relationship if you're able to work on it and uh, let yourself be as vulnerable as you need to be in certain moments. There's a bunch of phrases uh, and things that we can say, but we often feel extremely uncomfortable in saying them. But if you can get through that and if you can get to the point where you and your partner are having these uh, DNMs, these deep and meaningful conversations where you are whipping out some of these things, they're going to be pretty powerful. Some things people want to feel a sense of are things like, I'm special to you and that you really value this relationship. I need reassurance that I'm number one with you and that nothing is more important to you than us. Other things include, you know, people want to feel a sense that I'm needed, that you want me close, that I'm safe because you care about me and my feelings, my hurts and my needs, that I can count on you to hear me and put aside everything else, that I can ask you to hold me and understand that just asking is very hard for me. That's it. Uh some of those things don't necessarily be explicit, I don't mm. think necessarily, more of an implicit. So however you sort of communicate that feeling that you really needed, you're loved and you're, you're being held in the relationship. Because when someone loves you, uh, the way, so this is actually a quote from a four-year-old describing love, who said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. 
You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. That's a very wise four-year-old. Jesus Christ. <laughs> imagine imagine um, having your four-year-old say that you're like, to, at the dinner table. You're like, Jesus. We've got a young Casanova on the, on, the, on the way here. I wouldn't be sure whether to be just proud or perplexed. Uh, could be either or. Maybe probably a bit of both, in fact. At the start of a relationship, when we're falling in love... All of us are kind of naturally and spontaneously tuned into our partners. We're hyper aware of each other. Uh, we're exquisitely sensitive to our partners. Every action, every word, uh, we can really pick up the underlying feelings. But <laughs> there's a big but. With time, many of us do become less attentive. We become more complacent. Sometimes we can even become a little bit jaded with our partners. Our emotional antennas, they kind of get a bit jammed. There's all these other different signals flying in. We're probably too tuned into our own feelings and needs rather than theirs. And this is when the, our partner's signal that they're trying to send us are getting, is getting much weaker. So Sue Johnson, she's got a whole bunch of different specific types of conversations that we can be having to be building um, our relationships. And in essence, all of them have three basic components that, that, that come with it and implicit communication, I guess, that you're having as a couple. So these are the key to lasting love and emotional responsiveness between relationships. So the first part is accessibility. So you need to be communicating to your partner in some way that uh, they can reach you, right? You're not closing off. Uh, you're actually staying open to your partner. Um, and that's even when you feel doubts about your relationship or you might feel a bit insecure, you're always open in the relationship. This accessibility means that you're often being willing to struggle to make sense of your emotions so that these emotions are not so overwhelming because you can then step back from disconnection and tune into your lover's attachment cues. The next one is responsiveness and that's really saying, you know, can I rely on you to respond to me emotionally? This is then tuning into your partner, showing that their emotions, especially their needs for attachment, especially their fears as well, have some kind of impact on you. It means accepting and placing a priority on the emotional signals of, that your partner conveys and sending clear signals of comfort and caring when your partner needs them. And finally, engagement. And this is letting your partner know that you value them and you're going to stay close to them going forward. So the dictionary defines engaged as being absorbed and attracted, pulled, captivated, pledged or involved. And it means a special kind of attention that we only give to our loved ones. So if you're at the dinner table with a group of mates compared to your partner, hopefully it's a sort of different type <laughs> of attention that you, you're giving to them, right? When you look them in the eyes, you, you got this kind of sparkle or something <laughs> in your eye to their eye and uh, and you're basically emotionally present when you're there. You're not just sitting down for your glass of wine and just uh, whacking on the TV and uh, not looking at them or paying any attention. You're quite the opposite actually. You're very engaged in, in your communication. So they all sound good. Maybe they sound a little bit fluffy if you hear them from a relationship counsellor that she's made this nice ARE, accessibility, responsiveness, engagement. Um, they all kind of make intuitive sense. But also, even on the scientific level, um, researchers and neuroscientists have shown that every time you have a conversation that has those three important emotional elements embedded inside of them, there is this moment of deep emotional connection. Physicists, they speak of 
uh, a thing called resonance, which is like this sympathetic vibration between two elements that allows them to suddenly synchronize signals and act in harmony. It's kind of like the climax of a Bach sonata when you've got a hundred different musical instruments all coming together at, at the same time. And you, if you're sitting in that theater, then every cell in your body is kind of responding to that music that's coming out. The same thing happens if you have this uh, conversation that has accessibility, responsiveness, and engagement. You guys feel close and uh, your body, your mind, your mirror neurons, your brain, they're all buzzing in this perfect harmony with your partner. So we can all learn to stop the slide into emotional starvation that can happen in relationships and the distance that plagues so many of them. But more than that, we can learn this exquisite logic of love and the conversations that build it. In relationships, all of us can end up in these wild, wild patterns that we always fall into. And all it takes is a slight turning away the head or something or a flip of the careless remark or our old friend who grabbed Natalia at Coles <laughs> when they shouldn't have. Um, it can really send things crashing back down to earth and set fire to whole entire relationships. And uh, these toxic patterns can become so ingrained and permanent that they totally undermine the relationship. They just turn everything to shit. And uh, they block all attempts to repair and find that connection that we're all, all looking for. Mm. Now, this is a book um, you picked and you did the notes for. And it says here, brackets, AJ potential story here. What was that? <laughs> what was that story? Maybe man? something will pop up in my Maybe head. Maybe it was the Nutella, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I totally shot from the hip with this Nutella thing. It just didn't happen to me. It didn't happen to anyone. It was just BS. Man, I want to know what that story was. Okay. I, I don't know. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe it'll pop up. <laughs> okay. Maybe it might pop up. I know. When you were writing it, there must have been a story in the brain. But Well, it always happens when, uh, when we're reading. We, we put in the, put yeah. a star next to yeah. something oh, and yeah, just have is... a word. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, what the hell does uh, tree mean in this page, in this context? No idea. Oh, too funny. Uh, anyway, when we when we get into these sort of back and forth arguments, you know, if there's if there is uh, a safe and strong emotional connection, we can kind of deal with those little things uh, and just brush them off. But if we don't feel safe and protected, they can really spiral out of control. And the first one is uh, a type of uh, a pattern or a dance um, that she says, "Find the bad guy" is uh, what this is known as. And this is often when there's an attack um, or something that you interpret as an attack. And your response is to attack back and really just going around in circles attacking and really what you're trying to do is find the find the blame. You're trying to blame the other person. You want to say it's not my fault, it's your fault. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's not me, it's you. Yeah. You're not going to say that. <laughs> it's a reverse of breaking up with someone, isn't it? <laughs> 100%. You're not going to say it, but you're going to sort of mean it. And a lot yeah. of relationships, they sort of just yeah. basically saying that. And because of that, you can no longer relax with your partners because you're playing these blame mm. games that are slowly deadening and restricting your relationship. The old, uh, this was one of the uh, origin stories of us as a human species, if you remember, because in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, of course, uh, as soon as Adam takes the, the red apple, the forbidden apple. Does that so, it? I thought Eve ate it. Uh, Who eats the apple? Mate, you, went to a, you went to a Catholic school. Um, well, in any case, who, who took the apple? I'm pretty sure it's Eve. Hang on one sec. There's a snake, wasn't there? What did the snake do? Did Adam or Eve eat? Okay. So, <laughs> anyway, Eve took the apple and uh, in any case, God came out and said, uh, had a go at both of them. So, yeah. you're both in a lot of trouble. And Adam said, no, look, come on, God. It wasn't me. It was Eve. And he just yeah. pointed at her. Even though they were both conspiring about his apple, they were both partly to blame. 
And God just booted them both out yeah. of the, the beautiful Garden of Eden, and they all all the things turned to shit. But that's a, the origin story. Is just basically that blame game and this mm. and this find the bad guy. That's right. And you can understand that if everything you do is going to devolve into a fight about whose fault it was, who's to blame, you can understand that whole relationship. You'd be walking on eggshells. You wouldn't want to make one tiny mistake because you know that it would just spiral into this big fight about whose fault it was and who was to blame. Yeah, and there's always these moments that can come up where you can fall into this pattern. I was brutally tested when, <laughs> when, uh, when, and this was probably God's tests equivalent from the Bible, right? Because uh, we had this new couch, got a new home, got a beautiful couch, as you know, and uh, and had a couple of mates over to watch the footy grand final, and one guy there, Soccer, having a glass of red on the couch, probably half his fault as well. But then Corey, mate, you shouldn't be trying to turn to blame someone. Corey spear tackles this other. Jamie and this just spear tackles into the couch and then Socko spilled. So it was Corey's fault. <laughs> we'll hey, you fault. failed this test big time. No, but at the, at the time though, I, I could have just gone in this protest, uh, yeah. this, this sort of dance of, yeah. of blaming her, Fine but idea, yeah. I didn't. I kind of withheld. I was a superior man in this sense and I didn't. Didn't have a go at her. I did the next day. I was going to say, it sounds like you've really been... This has been no, brewing, mate. I'm kidding. I'm letting it all out now. Anyway, the, the couch was fixed. and um, Okay, that's right. And we didn't get in that dance. Yeah, no, good, good. I've just been bitching about it behind her back, obviously, on the podcast <laughs> or thousands of... Or million people. Man, I don't know who did get into that. A very similar situation was... Uh, when uh, Larry David was at the Greens household and uh, he was also having a glass of red wine and he blamed someone for flopping on the couch which made him spill it and they got into a big fight about who was to blame. Uh, was it his fault for holding it so loosely or was it her fault for flopping on the couch? Man, Who's it, that? <laughs> it was just a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. Ah, <laughs> it's yeah. been my new, my new addiction. Beyond After Seinfeld, it's gone to Curb now. Yeah, I like it. Well, that's an easy one to jump in. You find the bad guy. Sooner or later, one of you is going to stuff something up. Oh, yeah. Let's face it. You're going to make a... Probably make a daily. Mistake. Probably daily. <laughs> yeah. So, there's no shortage of opportunities to do that because as soon as you blame them, I'm telling you now, next time you stuff something up mm. and spill your red on your... Or That's your, right. Like me when I forgot to bring the key in and I had to climb through the window and <laughs> broke the whole windscreen. And sooner or later, you're going to stuff something up <laughs> as well. That's right. That's right. The next uh, dance that can devolve from this is what you call the protest polka. Uh, which is a nice, uh, is it German? German music, polka? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I love when you just yeah. say, yeah. When I say it in that tone, it's basically a no, isn't it? <laughs> Where does, maybe a bit of Googling in this episode. Where does polka come from? Bohemia, yeah. I think a bit of Czech Republic. Okay. Close enough. Um, interesting music, the polka. But what the protest polka is, is we started off with that kind of the, the, the blame game, finding the bad guy. The protest polka is one person attacks and the other person evades. They dodge it. They run away. And that just kind of makes the other person want to attack more. And then the other person is going to want to run away more. It's this dance that is constantly going on. One person steps forward in a negative way. The other person steps back. And that pattern keeps repeating. Yeah, you're getting attacked. Because you're getting attacked, you go defensive and you're not engaging. So it's not attack, attack. It's attack, defend. Mm. And then again, it's a negative feedback loop. Um, where you're closing the door and the other one's trying to barge through with a hammer sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, and it's a very bad demon dialogue. Now, the third one's a bit of an iteration on this also. It's the freeze and flee. And this is when we see both partners at this stage, they're both frozen and their mm. defense and they're in denial. Both of them are in self-protection mode 
and trying to act as if they really don't feel or they don't really need that connection whatsoever. Yeah, it often evolves from the protest polka in that the attacker, because the person's been running away, they've been fleeing for so long, the attacker's like, well, I'm never going to get him. So they freeze and start running in the other direction as well. But at the end of the day, uh, we need to be able to recognize when this dance is going to start playing. You hear the music pop up, the Latin jazz come on. (laughs) It's not the Latin jazz, it's the Czech Republic bohemian polka. (laughs) The the Czech Republic bohemian polka. You hear that music, the bass starts playing in in this conversation. You know what's going to start. You know the dance Mm, is going to start happening. But it's only then, you can sort of take the 50,000 foot view, take a step backwards and sort of look at the dance. Say, hey, we can hear the music coming. We see what's happening. What's happening here? And rather than getting caught up in this silly fight and this dance where you're both going to get hurt and your mm. relationship's going to suck from it, instead you're recognizing the music. And this is the first step to stepping out of these dialogues. That's right. It's not about just that specific uh, next step that you're doing. Like if, the, if you're the, in the protest poker and you make that attack, and trying to stop that attack isn't really what it's all about. It's all about taking that step back and recognizing the whole dance in its entirety because really you're trapped in the dance and you're trapping them in the dance as well because each move of the partner is kind of coordinated with the other partner. So it's really, it's a as, as they say, mate, t- takes two to tango uh, or takes two to polka or whatever kind of dance you're doing that each move is really reinforcing the other person's move. So you both kind of got to step back and see the bigger picture, listen to that music and decide not to dance. Exactly. So we need to stand together and call the enemy by its name and that way the music sort of is going to slow down. You're basically getting the TV remote out and hitting mute on the music. <laughs> That's right. And quite literally in that sense. And you're going to accept the dance for what it is. And because of this, we can sort of get back into that emotional attachment where we want to be. And this is where our love can grow in a very safe place. And couples all of a sudden, you can have the ability to repair these moments of disconnection that you've had. And with that, those Hollywood moments we're talking about where Brad Pitt, he holds Angelina Jolie and uh, holds her off the top of the Titanic. What's that? <laughs> that that sort of scene. How many movies just blurred together in, <laughs> into one metaphor? I think it was Lion, the Lion King mixed with Titanic mixed with, uh, I don't even know what the other one is. But anyway, that sort of Hollywood moment we can have. It's going to be awesome. You can have that emotional connection. Remember, it's the number one goal for a lot of us above all the other stuff, the more stereotypical goals we have. So we need to step out of these dances as soon as we can. Mm-hmm.